Thank you so much, and thank you so much for uh, coming to this press conference. After we held yesterday in the European Parliament in Brussels, the third edition of the International COVID Summit, we had tens of doctors, of experts, of researchers, uh, truly professionals who were analyzing uh, and dealing with the coronavirus for many years, and who presented us yesterday their findings and conclusions after the pandemic that we witnessed uh, in the past three years. Uh, we have here some of the doctors that uh, presented their findings yesterday. I would like to give the floor now to Dr. Malone uh, to share with us uh, some of the conclusions of yesterday's uh, event. Doctor. Thank you very much. I don't have any prepared remarks. I would like to acknowledge the courageous MPs that have enabled this opportunity and thank them on behalf of the International COVID Summit Group. This is our third International COVID Summit meeting. Uh, first one was in Rome in the Senate by invitation. The second one was in Marseille and Massy uh, in France. And now uh, it's been our great pleasure to be able to share our observations and conclusions uh, here in Belgium. I would like to, in particular, emphasize one of the key findings that ran all the way through the presentations, which is that, in fact, there are people who are vaccine injured. This is something that has been suppressed by um, all channels of, uh, forgive me, corporate media and governments that there are these individuals who are in fact vaccine damaged and they have not been allowed to speak. They have uh, had their experiences suppressed. They have been uh, demeaned. They have been gaslit and they are damaged. And uh, they are damaged in large part consequent to the uh, rush of this uh, product without adequate testing. This was also very well demonstrated during the meeting yesterday that the regulatory affairs uh, rules and regulations that have guided the European medicines agencies and the FDA and agencies all over the world have been very actively uh, bypassed. And unfortunately, there have been consequences that what we learn is that the wisdom of having these norms and practices to ensure the safety and effectiveness of products before they're deployed into humans have good reason to be used. Uh, that they do provide benefit to the population and to uh, humanity by ensuring that the activities of the pharmaceutical industry, whether well-intentioned or uh, otherwise, um, are properly controlled to ensure the safety and effectiveness of the products in the population. And I now ask for uh, Europe and the European Parliament to please consider that these individuals who have been subjected to so much. They've not only been damaged by the mandated products and the uh, vaccine passport requirements, etc., in order to just engage in their daily activities, to be employed, etc., or in lieu of, of not being vaccinated, they've, been, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their livelihoods. Uh, we, I strongly encourage that we acknowledge these individuals. We work together and that the uh, European Union might provide leadership in, in helping to uh, discover and identify potential treatments and therapies so that they can be made whole and that they be compensated for the damages that they've incurred as a consequence of the policies that have been implemented throughout the EU, the United States, Canada, New Zealand. Zealand, Australia, and across the world. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm creative director of this alliance of medical professionals and people who care about compassion and scientific excellence in medicine. Our own Dr. Pierre Corey testified to the European Parliament last week, and you'll hear his solid, excellent presentation in just a moment. Both he and Dr. Paul Marek will be here showing you some other shocking testimony that was presented. It should have been major news um, in nearly all media around the world, but the reporters and many members of parliament didn't show up. The censorship and the silencing of scientific and medical experts who have had good reason to criticize what they've uncovered as 
lies, yes, and outright fraud, yes, by authorities in COVID messaging and management continues. We think you need to know what truly independent experts, what those who are not pushing the latest pharmaceutical products have uncovered. And it's ugly. I'm sorry to say it's very ugly. I certainly learned disturbing details that I had not heard before. And now it's your turn. Know, however, that we do have, as usual, a team of top nurses online now, right now, to answer any medical questions that you might have. And Paul and Pierre will be here answering a lot of questions about the big picture in the discussion. It's an important discussion tonight. So, Paul, Pierre, doctors, come on. Let's let's go. Hi. Hey, Betsy. Hey. Uh, what yeah. was it like over there, Pierre? What what was your impression? Yeah, I mean, it was, I thought it was powerful. I mean, there was what I liked was the um the representation all over the world. I mean, there was experts from many different countries. I think we all have our little sort of niche and people are known for certain areas of expertise around COVID. Um, but I've met a lot of them before, but, you know, it just reminds me that like, you know, the FLCCC and other organizations, I mean, we're not unique. Uh, we might be unique in the United States, but in every country, um, they're very similar, like-minded, um, objective, conflict of interest-free uh, experts. And, you know, those MPs that put it together, um, I thought I thought it was a, a, a great stage and an audience that people could watch. Um, I will have to say that the amount of MPs that were actually in the building were very low. Um, the hopes are that most of the MPs were watching remotely. Um, it was felt that many of the MPs did not show up because they don't want to be seen associated with our side. Um, but they are, they are, they are all interested um, and they're asking questions. Um, and the MPs that were there, they spoke very powerfully, very forcefully. Their opening comments were great. Um, and, and the parliament was full. A lot of it was uh, speakers and attendees and um, uh, friends and staffers of the MPs. But um it goes into the record, you know, um, you know, all of our testimony, they're going to put it together in a, not only um, all of our testimonies are going to be entered into the record, but all of the data that we present is going to be uh, made into a booklet and also uh, be made available for all of Europe. So I think Good. it was uh, over time, I think it should have big impact. Um, and you can tell people are asking questions now. What was one of the ones that kind of blew your mind? That, that you saw, that you heard that was something new? Because you said there were there were a couple things. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to show a few of them tonight. Uh, you know, D David Martin is always uh, interesting, and I've listened to David Martin uh, several times. Um, his, his presentation, um, which kind of opened the conference, uh, was the most devastating. He, he went over the history of when coronaviruses were discovered, when they were first manipulated, when the first vaccine was patented. Um, and it's it's pretty shocking. Maybe we should watch it. Yeah, let's I don't know if that's the first one. In 1975, 1976, and 1977, we started figuring out how to modify coronavirus by putting it into different animals, pigs and dogs. And not surprisingly, by the time we got to 1990, we found out that coronavirus as a infectious agent was an industrial problem for two primary industries, the industries of dogs and pigs. Dog breeders and pigs found that coronavirus created gastrointestinal problems, and that became the basis for Pfizer's first spike protein vaccine patent filed, are you ready for this, in 1990. Did you hear what I just said? 1990, Operation Warp Speed, I'm sorry, Where's the warp and the speed? Pfizer, 1990, the very first spike protein vaccine for coronavirus. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it fascinating that we were, we were told that, well, the spike protein is a new thing. We just found out that that's the problem. No. As a matter of fact, we didn't just find out it was not just now, now the problem. We found that out in 1990 and filed the first patents on vaccines in 1990 for the spike protein of coronavirus. And who would have thought? Pfizer. 
clearly the innocent organization that does nothing but promote human health, clearly Pfizer, the organization that has not bought the votes in this chamber and in every chamber of every government around the world, not that Pfizer, certainly they wouldn't have had anything to do with this. But oh yes, they did. And in 1990, they found out that there was a problem with vaccines. They didn't work. Whoa. Um, for those who may not know David Martin, who did, what's his background? Can you tell us? Um, he, uh, I wish I could be really accurate, but he, um, I know he has a company that does research. He, he's a patent expert. That's one of the many things he does, but um I know in COVID, he's done a lot of research. Sorry, my dogs are barking. Um, a lot of research into the origin of the patents and the sequences uh, that made up the vaccine. Sorry. Go ahead, Paul, if you want to. <laughs> Seems like Piers barking. Um, what can you do? Um, maybe we, we can. Hey, Ryan, are you there? Hi, Paul. Yeah, I'm here. Thank you. How are you doing? Oh, recovering from the travels. It was an amazing conference. I think Pierre is uh, correct. It was uh, amazing to see so many people there. Uh, I've got the uh, the cold from traveling, like I think a couple of us got from being in so many places. But yeah, it was very enlightening. Uh, going back to, you know, kind of the question about David Martin, he has an extensive background in so many areas. Uh, you know, he's a patent researcher. He owns several information companies that inform uh, ratings for Bloomberg and Google. And basically he uh, controls the controllers in terms of their reviews. Uh, he has a medical training background as well, as far as I understand. Uh, he's an incredibly educated uh, individual who is very adept at research and exposing uh, the connected dots from year to year to year from uh, the past three years to 20 plus years ago. So I, I like that clip that you guys just showed because it's very enlightening as to how long these types of uh, pandemic planning events and efforts have been uh, in process. Wow, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize it. <laughs> I was in college, come on. I mean, this is just incredible that this has been on the table somewhere. Right. And when they came forward with the construct of uh, coronavirus vaccine, this this was one of my criticisms from day one. You know, I have a background in immunology and virology, my PhD work, in addition to virology during my clinical pathology training. And, and I knew long ago, as did David, coronavirus vaccines, because of the mutation rates of this family of viruses, were never an option to put on the table. And unfortunately, it was the only option put on the table in spite of all of those of us who knew treatment options were the best thing up front. So I think David was bold in stating fact uh, in that matter. And it's easy through the retrospectoscope for many of us to, you know, shout, hey, we've been saying this from day one, but many of us have been saying this. And it's very frustrating that now we're trying to mop up and help those who've been injured by the lack of listening to uh, science. I, I like to joke now, common sense obviously is not so common, but common science is obviously no longer common either. No. Hey, Betsy, can we hear Pierre's testimony? I think, I think we should. Let's, when yeah. Pierre was there, he was smashing. Let's, let's hear it. So uh, thank you, I appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm gonna speak about a topic, uh, I don't think any of the topics today are pleasant, but this one is particularly unpleasant to me. Um, I'm gonna talk about the global war on ivermectin, which was a massive global disinformation campaign whose only objective is to suppress the evidence of efficacy of this life-saving drug. My colleague, Dr. Brookie, just referred to the war on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I'm gonna take you through almost like a case study. This is what they do. And keep in mind, what I'm gonna talk about, it has nothing to do with ivermectin. It has everything to do with a decades-long war. They've been doing these things for decades on any generic off-patent drug, which threatens their profits. Next slide. Keep in mind, this is a forest plot. There's a little gray line in the center. All the green triangles to the left of that gray line 
are medicines that have trials to show that they're effective in COVID. We have 43 effective therapies. You've heard of almost none of them. If you live in the United States, the only ones approved are the ones that are circled. They have something in common, which is they're all absurdly expensive and present massive profits to pharmaceutical companies. Any medicine, no matter how many studies, if it costs a dollar or two dollars, it will not find regulatory approval in any advanced health economy around the world. And what happens as a result? People die. And they die frequently and in high numbers because they're being, there's a barrier to getting access to these medicines and having these recommended. If you see the square, that's ivermectin. It has the most studies of any therapy. 95 controlled trials, over 40 are randomized and showing a massive evidence of efficacy. Next slide. Now, why would they attack ivermectin? Ivermectin probably, and hydroxychloroquine, I would consider them almost equal, uh, presented a massive threat. It would have halted the vaccine campaign if they were following the rules, which is you can't have an effective therapy. It would have skyrocketed the public enemy number one, which is something called vaccine hesitancy, because this was all about the vaccine. And so they had to go after these drugs. Um, it also threatens the profits of all of the therapeutics that they were rushing out and improving on barely unmanipulated, actually fraudulent studies of single studies by these companies. So if you're talking about remdesivir, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, billion dollar contracts were written by our government before those studies ever were published. There was press releases issued and contracts signed and billions of dollars went into the pharmaceutical company's hands. They could not have a competitor. Next slide. So how did they do this? Well, it's something called disinformation. And I'm gonna be speaking specifically with the tactics that are used by industries when science emerges that's inconvenient to their, uh, to their interests. Every industry does this when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. There is no uh, industry that is more skilled at this than the pharmaceutical industry in modern times with the consolidation of media power, their control over social media, and their complete capture of regulatory health agencies across advanced health economies. What they can do is they can make you believe things that are true, they can make you believe things that, that it is false, and it can make you complicit in their own device, and it's largely centered around the use of propaganda and censorship, except their abilities to do both of those things are historically unparalleled. We now have a global media and communication system which allows them to do this propaganda and censorship worldwide. The biggest and the foundation of this entire disinformation campaign, I'm sorry to tell you, it occurred at the level of the studies that were done by big agencies. So the most biggest and most funded studies were the most corrupt. And it was also occurred at the level of the highest impact medical journals in the world, as well as the world's leading health agencies, which you could consider one of which is in the US. Next slide. <clears throat> Next slide. Keep in mind, they were, they were scared of ivermectin from the beginning. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Robert Malone, and other researchers had already identified ivermectin as effective against at least a dozen RNA viruses before COVID began. They were worried about ivermectin and its antiviral properties. And when the Nobel Prize winning discoverer asked Merck, his old partner, I think we should study ivermectin in COVID, what did Merck say? No, thank you. In the middle of a global pandemic. Next slide. Merck went even farther. And one night in February of 2021, when there was nothing to support these three statements, I will tell you this was their public relations team that put this on their website. Now, to find that a big, big pharmaceutical company would publish lies on their website is completely unsurprising to me. What was surprising is that this launched media campaigns around the world where media trumpeted over and over, started to echo a pharmaceutical company whose three statements completely are protecting their profits. And this became a PR campaign that went around the world. Merck says that ivermectin doesn't work. Next slide. So you could see this started early before there was any evidence to show that it didn't work. In fact, at the time of my testimony, which is two months prior to that statement, I already had 35 controlled trials, 17 of which were randomized controlled trials. There was already immense amount of evidence showing its efficacy. 
As of two weeks ago, we have 95 controlled trials with 134,000 patients. If you look at the forest plot to the side, all of the green squares that are going all the way to the left are showing large magnitude estimates of efficacy from dozens and dozens of trials. These are only the early treatment trials. It is the most proven medication in history, in history, yet not one advanced health economy around the world recommends it. Almost all hospitals, it's been removed from their formularies. And if you try to get it filled at a pharmacy, any retail pharmacy in any of those developed countries, the pharmacists will not do it. They're scared to death. Next slide. <clears throat> the trials. So how come we have all of these big, rigorous, large, high-quality trials, right? There's actually only been six of them. So out of the 95 trials, I will tell you the only ones you've seen on the front pages of your newspapers are what I call the big six. So out of that 95, there were six trials that were heavily funded and carried out by investigators. They're called the largest and high quality trials. What did they show? They somehow concluded, in contradiction to all of the other trials, that ivermectin wasn't effective. How did they do that? They did it because they know how to do it and they've been doing it for a while. They can design trials to show you something works. They can design trials to show you something doesn't work. They pull the same tricks over and over and over again. And I will tell you, all you need to know about those six trials compared to the 95, with one exception, those were the only trials where every, almost every single investigator of that trial was drowning in pharmaceutical company financial conflicts of interest. Every other trial had no financial conflicts of interest. So you have to ask yourself why they reached conclusions that completely departed from the rest of the evidence base. Next slide. These are the big six, and they, they, they appeared in the highest impact journals in the world, New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of American Medical Association, British Medical Journal, the Lancet, and the Annals of Internal Medicine. Every time they were published, they launched PR campaigns across the world. You saw radio stations and television stations and newspapers blaring, latest high quality study shows that ivermectin doesn't work. And then there's lots of trials showing that the ivermectin advocates of which I'm one, I will tell you every country in the world has experts on ivermectin who have had to watch and witness this propaganda campaign. Next slide. This is one of the more egregious samples. This is my own country. This is funded by the National Institutes of Health, which is our largest research funder. They just did a couple of trials on ivermectin and active six. Next slide. By the way, the lead investigator, Dr. Susanna Nagy, owns stock in a competitor to ivermectin. And she also has conflicts of interest with Gilead, which, uh, which makes remdesivir, as well as other products that compete with ivermectin. Do you think that she's an objective investigator? And do you think it's an accident she was hired? It is not. She was hired on purpose to do this kind of stuff. And if you look at this trial, this trial was originally designed to look at the difference in symptoms at day 14, which would make sense for an acute viral illness. In the middle of the trial, mysteriously, they decided to change the endpoint from day 14 to day 28. Why would they do that? Well, if you look at the results that they found, if you look at the posterior p-efficacy column in the other table, anything above 0.95 is a statistically significant result, which would show that ivermectin is superior. In the middle, you can see this in the journal. It's completely public knowledge. No one talks about it. Do you see now why they moved it from day 14 to day 28? It was to disappear the statistical significance. This paper was published in one of the top journals of the world with the conclusion that ivermectin has no role in the treatment of COVID. You know there's no ma major differences at day 28. And by the way, this is in all mild patients. Very few went to the hospital. There was one death, and that was in the ivermectin group. They never got ivermectin because they died beforehand. Next slide. I call it the big six, because they were the big ones that were published in the highest impact journals, but it's really seven. Let's talk about this seventh one. It was started a long time ago by the University of Oxford, by the same investigator who did a 25,000 person trial on molnupiravir, which has been completed, and we know the results, which shows that molnupiravir doesn't work. But it's a little odd what happened to the ivermectin trial. 
It has been 10 months since the trial completed. Not one mention of the result. Does anyone find that anomalous or abnormal? When we had to hear results of remdesivir and Paxlovid and Molnupiravir by press release before the data was available. These people at Oxford are sitting on a positive trial and you know it. They won't publish. They also did other stuff. Next slide, by the way, and look at, if you look at the designs of, I'm sorry, if you go back one, if you look at how the design, this is so brazen, right? If they wanna show something's effective, you're gonna make sure you're gonna get the study drug into that patient immediately and as early as possible to maximize benefit. So they did a median of two days in a 25,000 person Molnupiravir trial, which is a fantastic achievement. I would love to see that kind of science being practiced everywhere. Problem was, the drug wasn't effective. What do they do with ivermectin? They allow up to 14 days to start the medicine. And we have evidence from some of the participants that they were totally well by the time they got their medicines. This is not a real trial, this is fake. But I, I think they weren't good enough at what they were doing because they're sitting on a positive result. There's no other explanation why 10 months have gone by and we haven't heard it. They are laying low, sitting quiet, because they've seen that a lot of us around the world have found all of the fraud and brazen manipulations in the other large trials. Next slide. They also did something else curious, which is in the middle of the trial, they suddenly announced the halting of the trial. And the trialist from Oxford literally claimed to the world that they ran out of ivermectin, which is so absurd, no self-respecting trialist would ever run out of a study drug in the middle. Funny thing is, there's one functioning journalist left in the world, and that was at the Epoch Times. And you know what they did? They actually did something called journalism. They called the pharmaceutical company that was supplying the ivermectin to Oxford. And they had one quick question. They said, hey, did you guys run out of ivermectin? What was their answer? No, we have plenty. This is the kind of stuff they're doing. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. <clears throat> Beyond the publication, the selective publication of negative trials by pharmaceutical company conflicted in, uh, researchers, I have in my book, which is soon to be published because I did a huge deep case study on this, I have numerous examples of researchers around the world with positive randomized controlled trials of ivermectin. They were uniformly and systematically rejected from publication from any uh, any, any journal in the first or second tier of, of medical journals uniformly rejected. There is an editorial mafia that controls our top medical journals. Science has been completely corrupted. Beyond the rejections are those that actually managed to go through peer review and get published. We were suddenly retracted for reasons we'd never heard of in our careers. Me and my group, we published over 1,500 peer-reviewed articles, never had one retracted. First time in our lives was our ivermectin paper. Next slide. <clears throat> Next slide. And then we had to read editorial after editorial, you know, propelling these narratives that circulate in the media relentlessly. Don't believe ivermectin science. The studies are all low quality, too small. In different countries, the doses aren't the same. It can't be believed. Wait for the real science. These are the narratives that they've, that they've used to try to de destroy the evidence of efficacy. Next slide. Next slide. And this is an example. They picked one trial and they, they supposedly found it to be fraudulent. It may or may not have been. There are fraudulent trials in any body of evidence. We all know it. It's about 20% of trials will be fraudulent. They are not unique to ivermectin. But the world's leading researcher hired by the WHO and Unitaid, who published a phenomenally positive meta-analysis, which was a summary of 24 randomized controlled trials, which showed statistically significant improvements in mortality, hospitalization, time to clinical recovery, and time to viral clearance. I hadn't talked to him in a few months, and I saw that he published that paper, and I couldn't believe how astoundingly positive that paper was. I could believe by the fact that the media was silent about it. It was not carried. And then they, then I think the other side got real worried because I'm gonna stop in a second. The other side got real worried because Andy started behaving very differently. He self-retracted his own paper, next slide, and he started removing randomized controlled trials using invented categories. This is from his exact paper. It looks like a five-year-old who's trying to disappear the evidence of efficacy. So he makes up these categories, potentially fraudulent, no definition of what kind of study that is. And then this other category, which is some concerns. 
So there's a category of evidence in the evidence, which is when Dr. Andrew Hill has some concerns. So he removes and disappears the evidence base to the point where it loses statistical significance, and now he's claiming it doesn't work. A little bit bizarre of a turnaround for this researcher. Next slide, and I'm going to finish. The agencies, which we know they control, you cannot work at a health agency without making pharma happy. You know your career is over, you're off of committees, you don't graduate from the agencies to get jobs in pharmaceutical unless you do their bidding. They are completely in lockstep. And I will tell you that what happened was, with the ivermectin story in the United States, is that in the middle of August of 2021, ivermectin prescriptions hit 90,000 a week. They were skyrocketing. Everyone was figuring out it was working. Everybody was prescribing. In a very short sequence, you saw our CDC send out a memo to every state department of health, which then went to every licensed physician in that state. And that memo said, careful of ivermectin. We're seeing overdoses and people are getting injured. They made it out to be a dangerous drug when it's one of the safest, if not the safest medication we have in history. And after that, where they said that it was dangerous, all the professional societies in the United States with no authority sent out memos to every doctor in the country, we call for an immediate cessation of prescribing of ivermectin. And what happened then is the horse dewormer PR campaign was launched. And you can tell a PR campaign in the narrative when it's Two weeks, four different channels, and that's what you saw. You saw late-night talk show hosts, news hosts, newspapers, magazines, radio, horse dewormer, horse dewormer, horse dewormer. And at the end of those two weeks, no self-respecting doctor would ever prescribe such a dangerous and ineffective drug, and no patient would want to get it. Do you think that PR campaign was invented in August of 2021? It was not. It was launched in 2021 because they saw they were losing this war against ivermectin. And here we are at the end of three years, and it's been shut down in most of the advanced health, com uh, health economies around the world, one of the most effective drugs in history that would have saved millions of lives. This was a humanitarian catastrophe and a crime against humanity, yet no one will go to jail for it. Well said, Pierre. Yeah, I don't know what else to add. I think I said it all. Yeah, it was on fire. <laughs> you sure were. It, you know, and it's nice to see that you got that reaction, at least from those who were present. Um, and you certainly get that reaction when you talk to our people and when you're up there at our medical conferences. Um, problem has been getting the word out. And uh, we've got, a, we have other people that were talking about that. At, in front of the uh, parliament too. Wasn't that one of the clips that we have? Uh, say it again. One of, the, one of the other clips, one of the other doctors that was speaking was talking about the suppression of information that what you have said and what others were saying um, was so effectively kept away from people, kept away from the public through yeah. this campaign that you just showed very well. Don't we have another one, uh, a clip from that? The biggest lie, perhaps, of the entire story was this one. Tedros, head of the World Health Organization, in a very sneaky move, conflated what is known as a case fatality rate with an infection fatality rate. Case fatality rate being the rate at which people who are already sick and presenting at hospitals die from a disease an infection fatality rate being the rate at which people who are infected, many of whom who will have no Ill, Ill effects from that infection, die, and they're com two completely different things. So when he said that COVID had a fatality rate of 3.4%, that was a case fatality rate, and he compared it to the fatality rate for the flu, which was an infection fatality rate, much less than 1%. Next slide, please. What actually emerged as the reality early on, and I want to just point something out about this presentation. In order to make the point that we knew this in time to prevent any of this from happening, these slides only contain information available in the first year of the COVID phenomenon. I have put not an ounce of novel information into these slides except for the last one. 
John Ioannidis did a, a seroprevalence study where we can detect infection fatality rates, average them across the world. And in the first one that he conducted, he found that the infection fatality rate was not 3.4%, but 0.23%. In subsequent updates to that material, the rate has fallen to 0.1%. And I would just point out that that rate includes in its numerator a, a tendency to massively over-attribute COVID deaths all around the world. The real infection fatality rate in this disease is less than 0.1%. And when we consider, next slide, please, the fact that mortality is, next slide, please, the fact that mortality is massively age graduated uh, with the risk for young people being 1,000th the risk for old people. <coughs> when we consider that fact, it is completely correct to say that COVID never ever presented anything but a de minimis risk. Well, that was more about the science and incredible information about the science. Uh, yeah. Doctors? You know, I was going to tell you, know, Nick is really smart and his point is really, is really powerful. I mean, they, they literally manipulated the data. They misrepresented the data, again, for fear-mongering. Um, but there's one caveat, and Paul and I have talked about this, is that I really don't like the comparisons to the flu because even though the infection fatality rate may have been similar, um, we had massive, the transmissibility of COVID was like nothing we've ever seen. It's an airborne transmitted disease, whereas flu is not. And so really, I think the risk of dying from COVID, it's your risk of getting the infection and then the infection fatality rate. And I think and I think that's the big difference. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're trying to comport like this is nothing more than the flu. That's not really what happened. I mean, we, Paul and I were in ICUs that were full of people on ventilators. I mean, there was so many infections that it doesn't make it more deadly. It's just, it was a much bigger impact on the health system. And I, I, it was still a problem, but I, I still don't forgive Tedros for misrepresenting, uh, you know, the, the fatality rate. I mean, that, that, that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they're basically lying. And, um, and we're going to talk about that in the next clip, because um, uh, there was an expert on kind of mind control and, and manipulations of, of our perceptions, and they really wanted to inject fear. And you can see that. And I think Nick nails him. And I also like about Nick is that he presented data just from the first year. It, it, it's what we knew at that time. Um, and he also mentions like with lockdowns, he goes into lockdowns and saying like, We've known for decades that lockdowns don't work. Everyone, it was like a, a settled science in public health. Don't do lockdowns. And what did we do? We did lockdowns. Why don't we see the other clip? Some more important questions rotate around, excuse me, does media have the power to make our decisions for us? Can group pressure, our fear of the crowd, force us to make illogical decisions? Was the public exposed to any group pressure psychology during the COVID response? Next slide. The next slide was a video exposing the power of group pressure. It was called the ASH Group Conformity Experiment. The video was supposed to demonstrate this experiment to you, and I am going to have to do it live right now because I have no video. It rotated around this particular piece of paper. I'm going to do it with Dr. Stephen Malthouse. Stephen, there's a line on the right, and you have to match it the same length to one of the three lines. What's the right answer, A, B, or C? A. A, you're correct, and it was done in research groups of six, but there were five actors who were instructed to give the wrong answer, to see if giving the wrong answer would pressure, uh, pressure the research subject to give the wrong answer. Next slide. And the results were dramatic. 50% of people conformed to the crowd and gave the wrong answer. Secret answers given on paper reduced the conformity to only 12%. Only 25% of people held their ground to what they knew was true, right, and just, just like the honorable members here today that stood their ground. Most correct. 
Most conformists willingly admitted that their answers were wrong, but they went along with the crowd anyway. And how much of that have we seen since March 2020? People who are most likely to conform were low status, high need for approval types. I think we're going to the next slide. Sorry, I skipped ahead. There we go. People who were most likely to conform were low status, high need for approval types. We call them the forever children in psychology. People from cultures who honor obedience and people who derive their self-worth by how well they obey authority. Next slide. There are other conformity factors. If a person is in fear, they conform more. The conformist portion of our nervous system is our limbic system. This is our fight or flight system that responds to fear. Fear shuts down critical thinking and increases conformist behavior. Has anybody seen any fear since March of 2020? I have to interject a question from Rebecca, one of our viewers here, because this deals with this. You know, she says, having these testimonies all in one place and convened by the European Parliament seems to me to be a large step forward. I understand these testimonies will be entered into the official uh, record. And uh, do you believe, that is of course of the European Parliament, do you believe this event will meaningfully move the needle towards accountability for those who committed these crimes against humanity? Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it was emphasized by the members of parliament that the COVID committee had already prepared uh, a considerably large document of the which <clears throat> vaccine injury was only mentioned once, but not even in a good context or even an acknowledging context. So their point was to get this on the record. And what we found is some of the Eastern European nations, and we're likely going to be doing another large conference uh, in Eastern Europe this fall, a lot of those parliaments are much more open to the truth, the media manipulations, as uh, Jason pointed out in that excellent uh, talk he gave. This is an excellent opportunity to get this on the, on the official record. And I think it, it will continue to impact for good the reach of the voice of those of us who've been speaking out for so long. So I, I am cautiously optimistic in that regard and grateful that we could all get a lot of testimony on the record. Yeah. Ryan, where do you think this is all heading to, my friend? Well, I think this will be a good point counterpoint to the report that was about to come out from that uh, COVID committee in the EU. So I think this helps them not get away with what they were going to get away with. And I think this uh, obviates the obvious in terms of continuing to, uh, as Chris Martinson puts it, you know, there's private knowledge and, and then there's uh, common knowledge. This is bringing it all into that point where everybody's comfortable talking about what they kind of knew privately, but now they feel comfortable speaking about uh, publicly with friends. So I think this is all going to an openness of understanding. I think a lot of people are now aware that weren't aware. And this is just one more thing that allows people to be comfortable in their conversation and gives them another uh, area to point to for evidence, for reference, et cetera. So I think it adds a high degree of credibility uh, to the scientists that were, uh, you know, like, like the FLCCC team and those who've been speaking out all around the world all along. Yeah, I, I like, Ryan said he's cautiously optimistic. I've been saying that for three years. <laughs> uh, I don't feel well today, so maybe I'm just really cynical, but like, you know, I do think everything that we do advances a little bit, but in, in, in the battlefield conditions that we're in, which is just unrelenting censorship and propaganda, it's very hard to move forward. Like one of the things, one of the negative things I took away from that is there was no major press. There it was all independent media. It's all media that's been covering the story for a while. Um, again, like what I said at the beginning is my, my hopes are that uh, many, many of the members of parliament watched privately and they didn't want to show their faces. They didn't want to attend, but maybe they wanted to see where we are and, and 
and to just show the fallacy of their position and the and the and the ludicrousness, right? And if you go back to that last one, which is um, we talked about mind control. I mean, and then you look at Martin, you, you see like what they did here in COVID. They've known how to do for years. I mean, a little they have they have tactics and strategies, and and you know how to inject fear, how to make people conform. You know, it's and it's all for vaccines, right? They they figured out how to get the whole world to vaccinate themselves. And most of the world went along with it, you know, happily and gladly. And so um, it, in some ways it was terrifying what was revealed this weekend um, with those talks. But um, I, I was disappointed that there wasn't major media. It was mostly independent. But we all know the media is done. They're captured, right? So it shouldn't be surprising. Um, but it's very hard it's very hard to make advances in awareness and knowledge in the current atmosphere of total control of, of the media. Um, it, it's, it's sad. I, I wish we could break through, but it's really, really hard when, when the, you know, the world's media organizations literally control what we think, what we know, what we believe. And um, it's hard to break through that. What about the doctors? We, Laura Emerson has a question for Ryan Cole, Dr. Cole, she says, are more pathologists and embalmers sharing their physical findings with colleagues or the public? Can you update us on their findings? Uh, the good news is yes. And uh, even being at the FLCCC conference a week ago, uh, there were a couple of pathologists there um, that approached me. And so I've been sharing uh, lab techniques, what we've been doing. Uh, we do the same approaches that the German groups have been doing. So thankfully, uh, not as many as I would like. It goes to Pierre's point about the media. But at the same time, there's a, a quiet uh, awakening and more are asking, more are observing, more are confirming. And so the good news is yes, at the scale I would like, no, but the good news is yes. Listen to this. Um, Janet McGee, who's one of our viewers, said, I recently lost vision in the left eye for a few minutes. The eye doctor noted all retinal, retinal tests were perfect. It let him left him to believe it could have been a retinal TIA. Have you heard reports of retinal TIAs? The eye doctor also said he felt it could be from the vaccine. See, that goes to that common knowledge point. And there was a large report uh, on real world data showing an increase in uh, vascular retinal occlusion with both Moderna and Pfizer that just came out about a week ago. So we know for a fact that both of those vaccines have now been associated with uh, retinal vascular occlusion and an unfortunate case is blindness. So again, I think enough doctors are seeing things over and over that they're not used to seeing in their two, three, four decades of practice that are, are becoming uh, more, uh, more to the fore. They're, they're asking themselves that question. I think a lot more doctors are waking up. I still think we have, uh, like Pierre pointed out and, and Jason gave in his presentation, we still have that fear within society of being that tall blade of grass. Um, but it doesn't, I mean, I, I like to go back to history. Um, in, in the American Revolution, it took two to 3% of individuals to start the revolution. And when, when the American patriots won and the dust settled, 70% of uh, the colonists were still loyal to the, the Tories and the crown. But I mean, what that tells us here societally, you know, there's 25, 30% that never got a shot that stood up against all, all the way along. So in terms of seeing what's gone on, I, I maintain optimism in the sense that we have the critical mass needed to support the independent media. You know, to Pierre's point, yeah, there weren't major media sources there, but there were enough small independent media sources that we're going to continue to, if we continue to support the independent media that actually does real investigative journalism, then we'll get truth out. When we get more doctors like that ophthalmologist saying, hey, it could have been the vaccine, then another colleague will do it. So I think little by little, um, the tide is turning. And, and again, I'm, I guess, the eternal optimist in spite of it, everything. And I have Pierre, same cold, I think. I think we're, we're both suffering from the travels. But in spite of everything, uh, maintain the optimism is always my, uh, my tune. 
Well, we have a questioner also from uh, someone who said is wondering um, if we have seen anything about problems with babies uh, who are born after the mother or the father has had the injection. Um, and I will tell you that I, I just had lunch with somebody on Sunday, had nothing to do with medicine. It was all a discussion of the arts. And it turned out he tells me that he was injured after his second shot. He got one of the mRNA, I think it was Moderna, and he had trouble, a lot of trouble. And then he says, and he said, by the way, my sister is an OBGYN, and she's seeing a lot of trouble there. So obviously it's it's going you know around, but Diane Doyle says, have you seen birth defects in babies born or that either the mother or even the father got the vaccine? Uh, I know in the in the Pfizer studies, there were uh, rib abnormalities. There was a statistical increase in uh, bone abnormalities. Dr. Thorpe has uh, covered those quite well in some of his lectures, uh, James Thorpe. Um, there's a statistical increase in reports of birth defects in the VAERS system, in addition to the miscarriage rates, in addition to um, the, you know, the fetal demise cases, uh, sadly. And we know that the data just dropped uh, the Pfizer report number 69 from Naomi Wolf's group showing how much uh, problem there was in pregnancy. We, we recently saw how much funding, $11 million, the American Board of Obstetrics and, Gyne uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology received from the Community Cares Federal Funding Act. So they were biased in pushing the shots though they were never tested on pregnant women. And then um, my colleague, Dr. Burkhart, at one of the recent conferences I saw from him, uh, clearly showed spike protein in the placenta, clearly showed spike protein in the endometrial glands. So we know the spike protein crosses the placenta. It can induce uh, inflammatory changes and can certainly, in, not in all cases, thankfully, but we are seeing a statistically significant increase in those abnormalities, sadly. Question for any of you from Julie Westhoff. She says, can you talk about mRNA in our food supply? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, it's a valid concern, especially with the pseudouridine being used in, in mRNA. So, I mean, our body makes mRNA all day long. We're making signals to make protein and bone and and you know, normal physiologic function. The difference is these mRNAs are synthetic RNAs. And so there aren't good studies showing, you know, in undercooked meat, is that synthetic RNA, mRNA going, going to persist? We don't know. Do we know that mRNA, synthetic mRNAs are excreted in breast milk? Yes, we do. So, um, you know, thankfully, the American Cattlemen's Association and the American Dairymen's Association said they're going to stand against it. However, um, there's a rotavirus mRNA-based uh, injection being used in the pork supply already. Uh, the other concern people have is, well, what about growing it in vegetables? There's studies showing that mRNA you know, can be grown to make antigens in vegetables. Well, most of those would be broken down by the GI tract. So the, yeah. big problem there, the big problem, however, with that is the reason we can eat most of our food is because we develop immune gastric tolerance to things. So if eventually they try to continuously push uh, mRNA-based antigens through food orally ingested, now we're gonna become orally and gastrointestinally tolerant to a, a number of pathogens. It's, a, it's an immuno, immunologically horrific idea. But I think one of the points you made, Ryan, is um, if they inject mRNA into animals and it's in the meat, and then we eat it. Um, if the concern is that we're going to somehow be absorbing mRNA and it'll integrate into our cells and cause whatever to be made, that's not likely to happen. I mean, the, the stomach acid will break it down. You know, Robert Malone told me they've been trying to do an oral mRNA uh, delivery system for 30 years, and they've never come close. Um, now, could there be other problems with the, what they're injecting into animals? And could that cause other stuff? Uh, yes, but I don't think we should be we should be worried that mRNA will be, we're not going to take up, take up air mRNA and have it functional with the GI tract. And even with the breast milk, it's like, we don't like that it's in the breast milk, but if the baby 
drinks breast milk, it's going to go into the stomach. It's also going to get broken down. I, I don't think the baby is, at least I haven't seen data showing that the baby can take up mRNA from breast milk. Um, yeah, I mean, and these, and I, I think the point you bring up that's most valid is we don't know. And so these are things that should be studied before we rapidly push forward something just because we can. I mean, the industry is super excited that they have a new technology that they can use so quickly, but without the safety studies long-term. And, and my, my bigger concern is, yeah, I agree with you. It'll mostly get broken down by stomach acid. If they're in lipid nanoparticles, you know, you can orally absorb them. So to a small degree, but, but my bigger concern is just developing tolerance to these sequences. And then when the pathogen comes along, our immune system doesn't recognize it, it as a pathogen. And we just recognize it as an allergen that we don't want to allergically react to. Got to get a couple more questions in before we have to wrap. But um, Laura Chamberlain wants to know, I've heard that some of our hero doctors are worried about Marburg being the next pandemic. Do you have any, any of either one of you, all of you, do you have any guidance for us against Marburg so we can prepare? Do we need to prepare? Yeah, I, I, I think we, people just need to chill out a little bit. Um, I think the likelihood of us having a Marburg uh, pandemic is exceedingly uh, uh, unlikely. Um, Marburg is a terrible disease, just by the way. It's a viral hemorrhagic fever. Um, people do really badly. Um, I, I don't see that happening um, it, because it, it's much like Ebola. Um, it's, it, it will be contained and it doesn't spread the way influenza or, or COVID can. But you know what? I think, who knows? One has to keep an open mind. But I think one needs to, you know, we need to get the fear away. We need to just chill out. We need to just um, try to get back to normal and not be so fearful of what, what may or may not happen. Um, what do you think, Ryan? I agree with you, Dr. Merrick. I think Marburg is transmitted in a different way. Um, it's a tropical disease in Africa. Yes, it's very deadly. Um, there are rare occasional outbreaks. There was a recent one. But, uh, you, you know, both with Ebola and Marburg, uh, most patients that end up getting those and succumbing are mineral deficient, especially selenium deficient, which controls T cell function. Um, there are obviously things one can do to optimize their immune health, which the FLCCC already has on protocols. The likelihood of an airborne Marburg arriving in the US is I think very, very exceedingly slim. So I agree with Dr. Merrick, don't live in fear, but deal with what's here. It's spring, it's summer, go outside, get your near infrared light, your vitamin D, optimize your health, move your body, be in community and uh, just live life. You know, one last thing I'll add to that is, you know, we, we've we learned from the last three years, and even if you look historically over the last 20, is that health emergencies, especially viral outbreaks, are, are a really good business model, not only for governments to gain control and control the people and to make money. So that business model of creating these health emergencies and pandemics is going to be there. I don't think Marburg is a good choice <laughs> if, if you want to sort of rinse, repeat COVID. So if, but I, I will tell whoever asked that question, if it's not Marburg, it'll be something else and we'll, we'll figure it out when it comes up. Um, you know, one nice thing from my, if you saw from my lecture, I mean, we, we literally have 42 different novel kind of broad antiviral interventions that, that can get people through diseases. And so um, our, our knowledge that we gained through COVID of all the different things that work, um, I think all of those things are going to be, um, we can draw from if, if there's another viral or whatever pandemic that they want to create. One last question. You, you know, you know what we saw with COVID is that COVID went for the obese, the, those that were overweight, those that insulin resistant, those of vitamin D deficient. So I think there are lots of things people can do to improve their health. And that would go a long way in mitigating any potential so-called, uh, you know, new pandemic. You know, I think people need to get healthy, um, 
lose weight, exercise, get vitamin D, as Ryan said, spend time outside and just just get back to leading a healthy, normal life. Um, and then there's the question think- of vaccines. We have one last, I got to get this one in. Faraz Khan says, have you read any reliable forecasts for excess deaths from the COVID vaccines? Should we all be taking more vaccines? Um, I, I, I like Ed Dowd's data. I mean, the, the insurance data, uh, the federal disability data, they don't lie. I mean, these, it, it's blatantly obvious the amount of harms that are being caused. One can go into the Germany insurance company data as well. The excess death rate, uh, the reports just came out of the UK. Their excess deaths are up 22% in April uh, across the US. We're, we're plateauing, thankfully, but the excess death rates are still 20 plus percent above average. I think it's a good indication yeah. that just don't get another lipid nanoparticle uh, gene sequence shot of any sort. I just want to say that whoever asked that question, um, I guess we don't cover it as much uh, on our webinars, but that's settled science. I mean, these are the most toxic medical interventions in the history of medicine. I mean, not only excess tests, dropping birth rates, cancers, everything. I mean, the vaccines are done. I mean, if you've been paying attention, there's so much data. I mean, Ryan just referred to a few, but all across Europe, excess mortality is up. The excess mortality totally correlates the amount of vaccination um, and and like Ryan said, the, the life insurance data is absolutely damning, as well as the disability data. Um, who became disabled last year is all working age Americans um, that yeah. were working and employed. Those that yeah. weren't employed didn't get disabled. Yeah, I think that this whole experience now raises the question about the safety of vaccination. And people should really think twice about getting a vaccine because Natural immunity is a really good thing. We know it exists and there's nothing that can replace natural immunity. So we should work on, you know, our natural immunity and really seriously consider, you know, any future vaccination quite seriously. Yep. All right, guys. Thank you all. Thank you, Pierre, for being here when you clearly need to get to bed. Yeah. <laughs> feel better. Feel better. Yeah. Ryan. So I first saw Ryan. one of the people saying for for Ryan and Pierre, have they heard of zinc? Maybe a little bit of zinc <laughs> can go a long yeah. way. Um, I, you know, here's a, here's a, here's a great point you bring up, uh, Dr. Merrick. You know, just because we use and do all these things doesn't mean we're not going to get sick. But like Dr. Martineau's study back in 2017 showed, look, if you have a normal vitamin D level, it cuts your severity and your length of symptoms by half. So, you know, I was cruddy for a day or two. I'm on the mend today. Um, I know Pierre's on the mend. So, you know, don't be afraid of getting sick. Know that there are things you can do. And it's part of, I just look at it as great. There's one more thing I'm, in, I'm naturally immune to going, going down the road. So. I, I love your point, Dr. Merrick. Yes, we're, we're doing all the right things. <laughs> well done. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you all. I mean, and Ryan, nice of you to drop by. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a group of experts. I'm with you guys. Um, what, whatever you recommend is, I'm on it. I tell you. Um, thank you, Betsy. Sunshine. <laughs> thank you. All right. We have a few announcements, folks, before we uh, wrap up here. Uh, one thing you need to know, you know, they've been working so hard but our doctors, you know, our busy bunch and both Dr. Corey and Dr. Merritt will be heading to the UK next month to speak at the Better Way Conference hosted by the World Council for Health. That's taking place from June 2nd to 4th in Bath, England. You can learn more about it or book in-person or virtual tickets now at betterwayconference.org. Now then, um, you want to register to be notified about, you know, our little conference just a little over a week ago. We have all the lectures from the second FLCCC educational conference will be available as an education on demand EOD package very soon. And um, CEUs are available for all of you healthcare professionals. So be the first to know when all the content is available by signing up with your email at the link on your screen. There you go. 
Now then, we have a survey. Uh, for those of you who were able to attend the conference in person, we have emailed you a survey. Please fill it in when you can. Your feedback helps us enormously to plan for the next one. So we really appreciate hearing from you. And uh, then there is the swag. Oh, yes, we have lots of new spring items in our online store, including designs featuring our own Dr. Bean's artwork. So visit supportflccc.store and pick up a new autophagy apron or don't feed the cells shoes. And that brings us to the gal who comes up with all of this stuff. Christina, Christina Maros, who is our head nurse. Uh, she brings all the nurses together. And uh, we've got Christina, who are all the nurses who have been on tonight answering questions while we've all been talking and watching videos? Well, we have our lovely Pamela, Stephanie, and Emily, and they were all at the conference and they were so fun to hang out with. And we learned so much and everyone can register for 13 CEUs, Betsy. That's important for everyone to know, 13. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. And did you get, get any questions tonight that you were able to answer behind the scenes or was everybody listening to the doctors? Yes, we got lots of questions. Anyone, anyone want to comment on the questions, ladies? Everybody's excited about the mRNA and the food. So I'm glad that the doctors were able to cover that. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for, you know, folks, these, these gals are here and they're helping us as volunteers. So we are most grateful for your putting in your professional expertise and sharing it with our viewers. Thank you and the so conference, very much. The conference was incredible. Don't miss it. There's so much great information in there. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Colm. It certainly was. Thank you. And others. Now then, last but not least, of course, we want to thank each and every one of you out there for your endless support. We truly appreciate it. We couldn't do any of this, any of it, without you. We are going to finish up for the evening with a little glimpse of last week's conference. It captures the connections made, the insights gained, the friendships Forged. We hope you enjoy it, and we will see you back here next Wednesday. Thanks, and good night. The camaraderie here is just fantastic. The love that, that these practitioners and non-practitioners have for each other, that is so alive here, it's off the scale. It's exciting just to realize that there's so many people uh, earnestly and eagerly working on behalf of the patient to bring the best information forward. What FLCCC is doing is much, much bigger than just a virus. This is the battle to try to restore medicine to its original purpose. I'm grateful for those who've stepped up to educate us and for us to just learn from each other. I'm, I'm very energized and happy to learn and be part of the fight with putting patients first, because that's what it's all about. This is my favorite conference I've ever been to. And I've been practicing for, you know, 25 years. Yeah, I, I highly recommend. I think every single healthcare practitioner should come to this conference. You know, we take our cues from each other. So the value of joining together uh, at an event like this is that, is that people can step out a little farther. That encourages other people to also step out a little farther. And so we create a culture and a new normal of more radical or more innovative thought.